If you would uh, turn with me to to Psalm 13, we continue our uh, our summer through the Psalms uh, this week, and then one more time next week before we jump back into our study in the Gospel of John. Uh, but it's been a, a, an encouraging summer for me, uh, having the opportunity to, to preach through the Psalms. Uh, it's truly uh, just been a joy uh, to, to walk through that together, and uh, today uh, will be no different. So as you're, as you're turning there to Psalm uh, 13, in my days as a, a youth pastor, we, we would oftentimes play a game uh, that we called Take a Hike. Uh, and we would uh, form a, a circle of, of chairs, uh, and there would be one person in the middle, and there would be no extra chairs in the circle. Uh, and the person who was in the middle was trying to sit down. Uh, but uh, in order to do that, they needed to get uh, other people to stand up and move to a different chair. And how that would happen uh, is the person in the middle would would say something to the effect of, take a hike if you have ever, uh, and they would say something that they themselves have done. Uh, and then everybody who had done that, you say, take a hike if you've ever been to Disneyland. And you'd all stand up and, and go to a different chair. Uh, and in the chaos, the person in the middle would try and get to one of the chairs. And the person who was stuck in the middle uh, at the end had to, to go through the process uh, again. Uh, and the goal of this uh, this game is to, to get to know one another. It's an icebreaker. Uh, and sometimes when, when there's something truly unique came up, you'd kind of say, pause, time out. You've got to tell us about that story. Like when a kid says... Uh, if, if you've ever been chased by a bear, take a hike. You're know, like, well, you've got to tell me. You can't just leave that out there. Uh, I need the details on that. Uh, and so in, in all the years playing that game with, with teens and adults, I've had a lot of funny stories and crazy stuff. And a lot of stuff will be shared about physical pain that kids have experienced, right? If you've ever broken a leg or if you've ever you know, dislocated your shoulder, you know, things of, of that nature. But th- things that were never said in the course of that game were things pertaining to, to deep emotional or, or spiritual hurt. You, you never had a, a student or an adult say, you know, take a hike if you've ever cried yourself to sleep at night. Take a hike if you've ever been so uh, anxious or depressed that you haven't been able to eat. You know, those types of things aren't shared in in those settings and if we're if we're honest we're really like there's no good setting to share those things nobody nobody naturally wants to share our deepest hurts our biggest discouragements we naturally keep those to ourselves and i think especially just as as christians sometimes we don't want other people to know that we are struggling as christians sometimes we, we feel like we have to have it all together but we know that's not the case uh we know that uh, if if we're being truly honest, those things that uh, we are most likely not to share, those areas of uh, discouragement and depression, those occasions that we feel the most angry or frustrated, occasions when we even might feel abandoned by family or friends, or maybe, depending upon the severity of the trial, we might even feel abandoned by God. So those are the things that we most need to share, but we feel like we can't. And when we come to Psalm 13, we come to David when he's feeling abandoned by God. And what I'm so thankful for is that here in this psalm, David shares. David speaks about what is wearing upon his soul and his body about his, his biggest discouragement, about how he feels truly abandoned by God and attacked by man. 
And I'm so thankful because the presence of this psalm in the scriptures shows that we can talk about those things that are most discouraging. Those things that uh, weigh the heaviest upon our bodies and our souls. And it has been said that that the book of Psalms is the only book in the Bible that is written to God. It's a collection of prayers uh, offered up to God, echoing back to Him again who, who He is and what He has done. But also what we see is that those who are in distress cry out to God. And so when we come to the Psalms, we see a full spectrum of emotions. We, feel, we see the, the full spectrum of human experience, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But these psalms were written down to be instructive for us. And these psalms were, were written in praise of our holy and sovereign Creator. And we're not told about the circumstances behind this psalm, merely that it was written by David. So read along with me now. Psalm 13, just six verses, but beginning in the title. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And what we see is that in this psalm, in one of David's darkest moments, he cries out to God because he feels abandoned. And yet by the end of the psalm, David is expressing his trust and saying his intention is to, to worship, to rejoice in the Lord, to sing his praise. What we see in this psalm is a, is a movement, that how it begins is different from how it ends. And so it is an instructive blessing because it shows us how to get out of the depths of despair, how to dis- escape from depression, how to escape from discouragement, even when we feel abandoned by God, even from the deepest, darkest valleys, we see a blueprint for how to, to climb out. But what does this psalm have to say? So I like to call it the song of the abandoned. How, what does it tell us about climbing out of a canyon of despair, discouragement, and depression? Well, Say so it's going to make three claims about the nature of despair and how we are to escape from it. Uh, and you can break these three claims, these three portions, into two verses each. And the first is the suffering tempts us to question God. The second is that prayer turns us to behold God. And third, Scripture teaches us to trust God. Let's look at this first claim. That suffering tempts us to question God. Again, it's found in verses 1 and 2. And as we read those verses, I'm, I'm sure you noticed that there was a phrase repeated four times. 
Four questions asked. How long, O Lord? How long? David is in despair. He's experiencing great suffering and he repeats this question to God of, hey, how much longer do I have to endure what I'm going through? How much longer are you going to have me here, God? And what we see in these four questions is really David has a threefold trouble. David's first trouble is with God. We see this in verse 1. It says, how long will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? It's amazing that when we are suffering, when we are in the middle of a trial, does time seem to move faster or slower? It seems to just inch along. That man, the good times, they roll past. But man, times of difficulty and trouble, they just slowly march along. We're like, Lord, how much longer am I going to be here? And what's interesting is that, that David is crying out to God because he expects to be remembered. Says, God, how long will you forget me? Is it going to be forever? I, I expect you to respond when I cry to you, God. But what's discouraging to David is that God has not responded. David says, will you forget me forever? And the second line of that first verse of, how long will you hide your face from me? The hiding of the, the face of God is uh, I guess synonymous with the idea of, God, you, you've removed your favor from me. When God looks at you, he, he's doing it in a favorable way. So David is saying, God, how much longer are you going to be at odds with me? I can't feel your presence anywhere. It's nowhere to be found. You have hidden yourself from me. And just notice the, the personal nature of this. Back in uh, a previous psalm, he was psalm, psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? David is speaking uh, of... of I guess a, an, not a personal case, but just a, a, a not normal condition. But here in verse or Psalm 13, this is very personal to David. It's not, God, why do you hide yourself? God, why do you hide yourself from me? Why are you hidden? So David asks this, and we see this is his first trouble in verse 1, his trouble with the Lord. And then verse 2, the first part, we see that he has trouble internally. It says, how long must I counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? And it's a hard to understand phrase, that first one of uh, how long must I take counsel in my soul? And the Hebrew word for, for counsel there really has the idea of uh, worry, uh, anxiety. Uh, and so what we see is that not only is anxiety weighing upon David's soul, but he also has sorrow in his heart. And this is a, a twofold agony that he is experiencing day in and day out. So he feels removed from God, that God has forgotten about him. And then internally, he has an anxious mind and a heavy heart with a heavy, heavy net effect upon David's life. But that's not the end of David's troubles. His troubles continue to a third source. Or a third experience in the last line of verse 2. And this is probably the, the source of his problems. This is probably the, the root that makes him feel removed from God and is creating the anxiety and the, the heaviness in his heart. 
says, How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He has an external problem in addition to an internal problem and a problem with God. And David's enemy, we're not sure who he's speaking of, but currently at this point in time, David's enemy is exalted over him and in power. And David is saying, how much longer is that going to continue, God? How much longer? And ultimately, it's, it's trials that endure, that continue on for a long period of time, that take the heaviest tolls upon our lives, is it not? Andrew Fuller once said that it's not the sharpest, but the longest trials that we are most in danger of fainting. When Job was accosted with evil tidings in quick succession... He bore it with, bec- with becoming fortitude, and when he could see no end to his troubles, he sunk under them. It is amazing. Uh, in, in the life of Job, in Job 1 and 2, Job loses, loses his family, all ten of his children, all of his possessions, and he handles it so well. And he gets this news one after the other. It says, while one servant was still speaking, another one came in with bad, more bad news. And Job says, well, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. But as his troubles continued and they, and they wore on longer and longer, that's when, when Job began to question. That's when he began to get into trouble and demand an account of God. Say, God, how much longer is this going to endure? And tell me, why is this happening to me? It's those long-term trials that we face that are most discouraging. And ultimately, what we see in verses 1 and 2, in each of these three troubles, each of these four questions, David is wrestling with God's timing. David has an idea of how long he wants to suffer, but that doesn't line up with how long God wants him to suffer. And we wrestle with God in the same way, don't we? We say, hey God, if if you're going to make me suffer, make it quick. Right? That's how we remove band-aids. Right? Just, Just rip it off. But God works not according to our timetable, but to His. And we are often tempted in these long trials where we are suffering, we are tempted to question God, to doubt His love, to doubt His power, to doubt His wisdom. And as we think all of this, of all of this, suddenly Jesus' instruction of how we are to pray becomes infinitely harder, does it not? Because in Matthew chapter 6, he says we are to to pray, famously known as the the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. What's the next phrase? Your will be done. And oftentimes we we, we pray that prayer, but it's kind of with a little asterisk next to it in our heart. Lord, may your will be done as quickly as possible according to my timetable. But that's not how God works. He brings about his will in his way and according to his time. And when we pray that prayer of, Lord, your will be done, we have to have our hands open and acknowledge, Lord, you may have me in this trial for a long time. Lord, I'm willing for your will to be done no matter how long I'm under this difficulty. And I know that no matter how long I'm here, Lord, you will sustain me, that you will keep me, you will give me the strength to abide under this trial. But oftentimes we lose sight of that. And this, this psalm is encouraging because it points out our tendency to question God when we are suffering. 
but it also shows us how we are able to come to God, to lay bare all of our emotions, all of our feelings. We are able to cry out to Him. And praise God that He understands the troubles that you are facing. That simple lament of how long could be offered up probably by many of us today. How long, O Lord, will you allow conflict in my family? How long will I experience these health problems? How long will I be harassed at work or at school? How long will I struggle with depression or anxiety? How long must I remain under this trial? We can all pray one of those prayers of how long. And we can take courage in knowing that God hears us, that we can bring that concern to God. We can come to the throne of grace and He will hear us out. But we also have to guard against the temptation to be carried away by those questions. Because it's easy for us to, to grow bitter. Charles Spurgeon says it well. He says, It is not easy to prevent desire from degenerating into impatience. It says, Oh, for the grace that while we wait on God, we may be kept from indulging a murmuring spirit. It's so difficult, right? So difficult not to grow bitter towards God when we are abiding under a trial for an extended period of time. But David's going to show us exactly how to do that as this psalm continues. We move to verses 3 and 4. We see that the second claim about the nature of despair and how we're to escape from it. If you look with me at those verses, at claim number 2, I would call that prayer turns us to behold God. David says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So in verses 1 and 2, David is offering up what we could call a prayer of lament. He's crying out to God, bemoaning his circumstances, asking for relief. Verses 3 and 4, he's offering up petitions. He's making requests. And David makes three simple requests, beginning of verse 3. It says, Consider... Answer me and light up. Three simple requests. Let's look at them briefly. And the, the first one is consider. And, and the Hebrew word is more literally just look. And it carries the idea of looking with your eyes in a particular direction or looking upon someone else with favor. And if you think about this, what, what did David feel back in verse 1? He felt that God's face was, was hidden. So what's David's prayer now? God, look at me. Here I am. Can you hear me? That's David's first prayer. Just pleads for God to reveal his face, to turn and look upon him with favor. And his second request is, answer me. Lord, I just, I just want a response. I want to know that you have heard me. And in the Hebrew, it's a little bit more... Emotion, because that little word and isn't there in the Hebrew. David's prayer is just, consider, answer me. You, you get a feeling of the desperation that David is feeling when we understand that. 
David longs for a response to his cries of how long? God, I want to hear from you. That's what David is saying. And his third request. Light up my eyes. It's a simple request, just like the other two, but there's a, a great theological background to this idea of light. See, whenever light is used in Scripture, it always has the understanding that light comes from a single source, never from any other source, and light always comes from God. Even if the light comes from the sun, who's it that's powering the sun? God. It's a very weighty theological word. And when David is saying, light up my eyes, there was this emphasis in acknowledging that only God can do that. And light is the source of blessing, wisdom, and life. Uh, it, a very famous uh, blessing that God commanded Aaron to speak to the, the nation of Israel is found in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. It says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And I'll always remember that because the, the church that I was at in college, the pastor, after every single service, he closed the service with that blessing. And we can kind of speed right past it because we're familiar with it. But what is, what is said there? It says, may the, the face of the Lord, the Lord make His face to shine upon you. What does that mean? The light comes from the face of God. All of this ties together where David is saying, Lord, look at me. Your face was previously hidden, but Lord, I'm praying for you to look. May the light of your face shine upon my life. David is praying for God's blessing to be upon him, for God to turn his face once again. And this same prayer, same idea of lighting up someone's face, the idea of giving them life is, is found elsewhere in Scripture. If you just turn over a couple pages in your Bible to Psalm 19, verse 8, it says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure. And what does the word of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord do? It enlightens the eyes. It gives wisdom and life. Proverbs twenty nine thirteen says, The poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. Meaning that God gives life. He opens their eyes. He gives life to both the poor and the oppressor. He is sovereign over both. So when David asks, Lord, light up my eyes, it's a prayer for God to give him life. That's what David is asking here. He makes these three requests, and then David makes or gives three reasons of why God should answer his requests. Making this good business proposal. Hey, God, you need to do this, and here's why. Uh, he's going to reason with God. He's going to give three reasons, and each of them begins with that word, Lest, first one, lest I sleep the sleep of death. God, if you don't act, I'm going to die. That's what David is saying. Second argument, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Saying, God, if I lose, my enemy wins. And since David is God's chosen king, it feels like the enemies of God would win. And the third argument that David Uses He says, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And that last phrase, I am shaken, is a, a euphemism for death. And if David dies, the enemies of God win and they rejoice over 
God's king perishing. So David makes these three requests and offers up three reasons for those requests. But then let, let's pause for a second and let's, let's, let's zoom back out and think about what has taken place in these first four verses. Because it kind of seems contradictory. Because in verses 1 and 2, what is David's complaint? God, you're not answering my prayers. You have abandoned me. What are you doing? And then what is David doing in verses 3 and 4? He's going to the God he says has abandoned him. He's going and turning in prayer to the God that he's saying, you haven't answered my prayer. You haven't responded. So you're like, David, what's going on? And as... As Dale Ralph Davis says, this is lousy logic, but excellent faith. I love that principle, that that what may not make sense, David is doing anyway. He can't help but turn to the Lord in prayer, even in the middle of feeling abandoned by God. Charles Spurgeon tells a a story about a, a woman in his first congregation, and he called her Mrs. Much Afraid. She was always doubting and fearful over her spiritual condition, though she had been a believer for 50 years and had shown all of the signs of genuine faith. She was faithful in her Christian duties, attending worship services, helping her neighbors, and she was faithful to proclaim the gospel to those who did not know Jesus. And one day, she and Mr. Spurgeon were speaking, and she declared that she had no hope, no faith, and she feared that she was a hypocrite. So Spurgeon told her to quit coming to the chapel because we don't want hypocrites there. And he asked her why she came, if she felt that she had no hope or no faith. And she replied, I came because I can't stay away. I love the people of God. I love the house of God. And I love to worship God. And Spurgeon answered and said, you are an odd sort of hypocrite. And as the conversation moved on, he asked her if she had any hope at all. And she said, no. So Spurgeon pulls out his wallet. He says, I have a five pounds here. It's all the money that I have, and I will give it to you if you will sell me your hope. The lady kind of looks at him perplexed. What? Uh, and she, she looks at him and says, well, absolutely not. Why, I would not sell my hope for a thousand worlds. And, and Spurgeon kind of comments and says, so on the one hand, she says she has no hope, but on the other, she says that she wouldn't sell her hope for a thousand worlds. And in short, you could say that her instincts assumed what her words denied. On the one hand, she's saying, I have no hope, I have no faith in God. But on the other hand, she's saying, I can't stay away from God. That I love Him, I love His people, I love His church. And true Christians, there may be occasions when we are greatly discouraged, when we may feel abandoned of God. But even when we feel that way, we can't stay away. We can't help but run to God. We can't do, we can't help but do what David does here. That even though we are discouraged, we still turn to God in prayer. That is what true Christians do. And that's, that's not to say that we don't face the temptation not to pray. Very much so. Struggles, depression, despair. Discouraged souls will always be tempted to perpetuate their problem by, by internalizing everything, by trying to bottle it up and keep it in. Has that worked for anybody here? Anybody? I'm just taking a quick survey. 
but, but that has never worked. And what we see among the people of God is that in the middle of those struggles, we are called to pray. We are called to turn to the Lord. That is the beginning of the climb out of our valley of despair. We are called to pray to God on all occasions and at all times. To pray without ceasing. That is the upward path that we are called to follow. But we also see here in these verses that prayer is a thinking exercise. That David came and he reasoned with God. He sought to convince God, this is why you need to act. And we can vent all of our emotions, but we don't check our minds at the door. We hold reason and emotions uh, together and bring them both to God in prayer. And there may be some here this morning who need to come before God in prayer. To yield their burdens to Him. To yield our struggles. To, to yield our discouragements. Those things that have truly been weighing down upon us for some time. Christ calls us to turn to Him and to trust Him. To give Him our burdens rather than trying to carry them on our own. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 says, Jesus speaking, He says, Come to Me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. Jesus offers us rest because what He promises to carry for us. Even as I spoke during uh, our, our communion, that what Christ took on, what He gave up and what He took on is amazing to think about. Emptied Himself of His deity. Became a man. And I should clarify, Jesus is still God the whole time He's on the earth. I know there's discussion of that. I want to make that clear in how I phrase things. But Jesus did not consider being equal with God something to hold on to, but he emptied himself by becoming a man, came down to the earth, bore our sin, bore our shame, bore our guilt on the cross so that we don't have to carry it anymore. We can come to the foot of the cross and lay that down and say, Jesus, this is too much. Carry this for me. And He promises to do that because He paid the penalty for sin. On the cross, He experienced the wrath of God. He was crucified and then He rose again on the third day showing that His sacrifice on our behalf was accepted by God. And we need to take Him up on His offer to give rest. We can take all of our burdens and give them to Him. And that's what I would invite you to do that today whether you've already placed your faith and trust in Him, we just need those constant reminders to come and lay our burdens down at the foot of the cross. And if you've never done that, I would invite you to do that. If you've never looked to Christ as your only hope in life and in death, as your only hope of salvation, I would plead with you to do that. Look to Him in faith. Pray and ask Him to forgive you, understanding that you cannot save yourself. That is what we are called to do. To yield all of our burdens to Christ. And even though Christ had not yet come to the earth, that is what David is doing here. He is turning to God in faith, in prayer. And prayer is one of the greatest weapons that we have in the battle of discouragement, in the battle against discouragement and depression. 
When we begin to pray, we begin to win the battle. We begin to, to fight and to climb upwards, and we begin to have hope. But I say that prayer is one of the greatest weapons because it's not the only weapon that we are given. The other weapon that we are given is the Word of God. And that's going to be the third claim, the third part of what we will see today in Psalm 13. That Scripture teaches us to trust God. This is seen in verses 5 and 6. Look with me there. David continues, he says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And verse 5 is, is very emphatic in the Hebrew. Now, there's a twofold emphasis here. Number one, it begins just with the, the, the contrast. It's just, but I. It doesn't follow the normal Hebrew word order, but it begins there and it emphasizes a contrast between what has been said previously and what David is saying now. David is not continuing on the path of what he has said, that he's in despair, but now something is different. And the Hebrew, the, the order of things here is literally, but I, in your steadfast love, I have trusted. The first emphasis is the contrast, but I, and the second emphasis is upon the words steadfast love. In Hebrew, this is just one word, hesed, but it's a, a word loaded with meaning. And if you were to, to look at different English translations of this psalm, you would begin to see, man, this is a difficult Hebrew word to translate because listen to all the different ways our English translations render this word. The NASB says loving kindness. The New English translation says faithfulness. The King James and the New King James translate it as mercy. The Holman Christian Standard translates it as faithful love. The NIV translates it as unfailing love. And the ESV translates it as steadfast love. And the, the, the idea that this word carries is of covenant faithfulness, of never-ending loyalty, kindness, and love between two parties. And if we were to, to translate the full weight of this word, we would say the steadfast, covenant-keeping, loving-kindness. But that gets kind of wordy, right? If it, it, this word appears everywhere in the Old Testament. So, so to translate it as four words every single time it appeared, it would be like, okay, I'm kind of getting the, the sense here. And that's why all of the English translations try to narrow it down to one or two words. But we have to see and understand the power of this word. And now we also have to ask a question of David. Because he makes this assertion, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. And I would just ask this, David, where did you learn that? Where's that coming from? Right? Two verses ago, you were on suicide watch, David. What is different now? How has this changed your life? This contemplation, this trusting in the steadfast love of God. And turn with me backwards in your Bible. The book of Exodus chapter 33. We're going to answer that question of, David, where did you learn this? Where is this coming from? He would answer this. Now the context of Exodus 33. Exodus 32, Moses was at the top of Mount Sinai, and Aaron, his brother, is down 
with the nation of Israel. And Aaron leads Israel into committing idolatry by creating a golden calf and then saying, this is the God who brought them up out of Egypt. So God says, hey, Moses, you need to go back down. Moses goes back down, sees the people committing idolatry, rebelling against the Lord under Aaron's direction. And the the two stone tablets that God had just made, writing the law on them, Moses takes those down. And what does he do with them? He, He throws them down the mountain and breaks them, representing what the people of Israel had just done with their covenant with God. They had just broken their word, what they had promised God. And then Exodus chapter 33, God, or Moses goes back up the mountain and intercedes on behalf of the people of Israel. And in his discussion with God, if you look at the beginning of verse 18 in Exodus 33, this is what Moses says. He says, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And when the Lord is in all caps, it's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face you shall, shall not be seen. So Moses requests of God, Let me see your glory. And God says, You can't handle the glory. You can't see it. But I'll give you a small taste. I'm going to hide you away and I'm going to pass by and you'll just get a, a little, little glimmer of what the full glory of Yahweh looks like. So Moses gets ready to see that little portion. If you look with me, it's a bad chapter break here. Uh, keep reading with me in chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze upon, graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took, his hand, took in his hand two tablets of stone. So Moses gets ready, and then what we're going to see next is, is very important. If you, if you mark in your Bibles, I would applaud you. Uh, and I would also say, mark this passage. Write this down, because what we're going to see is God's autobiography, or to put it in a more modern terminology, this is God's self-identification. This is God saying, this is who I am, Moses. Look at me, beginning in verses, verse 5. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And in God's autobiography, as he explains who he is, as he proclaims his own name, did you catch what word was repeated twice? Steadfast love. Hesed. This is one thing that characterizes God. He is a covenant-keeping, faithful God. This is where David learned about the faithfulness of God. And he's not the only one who learned about the faithfulness of God here. Because as you read the the Old Testament, keep an ear out for echoes of this passage. This passage is, is alluded to so many times throughout the entire Old Testament. It's alluded to in Deuteronomy, 2 Chronicles, Nehemiah, Joel, Jonah, and then repeatedly over and over again in the Psalms. Psalm 86, 5. Uh, 86.15, Psalm 103, verses 8 to 13, Psalm 111, Psalm 112, Psalm 116, Psalm 145. The list could go on and on. But I want to look at one of them in particular. Turn with me to Psalm 23. Very well-known psalm. Maybe the most famous chapter in all of Scripture. Look at me at verse 6. David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And that, that word for mercy is hesed. That is the, the steadfast love. That is the, the loving kindness of God. And what David is convinced of in Psalm 23, and he's just as convinced of in Psalm 13, is that the steadfast, covenant-keeping, loving-kindness of the Lord will follow him every day of his life. It will be with him. It will pursue him. David has trusted that that will be the case, whether the Lord has led him besides still waters and green pastures, or whether David is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. David trusts in the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of God's word and the trustworthiness of God's character. David has said in his heart, God, this is what you have said about yourself. And I believe it to be true. That's what's going to lead to change in David's life. Because as you, as you turn back to Psalm 13, David makes this, this profession. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. And then what are the results of that? He doesn't just stay the same. He doesn't immediately go back to, I trust in your steadfast love. Now how long? That's usually the way that I pray, right? I trust you, God. Now when are you going to deliver me? But David says, I trust in your steadfast love. He says that past trust is going to lead to future worship. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord. I will sing to Yahweh because He has dealt bountifully with me. 
as David begins to trust in what God has said about himself, David also has a, an epiphany. Oh yeah, God's been faithful to me. Right? Well, you're like, David, earlier you were complaining. You said that God had abandoned you, that he's forgotten about you. But now you're saying, oh, you know what? Upon further reflection, God has dealt bountifully with me. He's given me so much. He's done so much for me. And that realization leads David to say, here's my new intention. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to sing to God. That is his new intention. David has moved out of the valley of despair and he is now at the heights of worship. Saying he is going to praise God for how God has acted in his life and for who God is. That is what we are called to do as well. And to to understand that, that the faithfulness of God will not fail for us. We can lose our health, our home, our goods, even our lives. But we cannot lose our God. That's what Romans 8 says. Paul says it far more poetically than I say it. I would encourage you to to go and read that. But we have to remember that. That steadfast, covenant-keeping, loving kindness of God. That's, That's the foundation of what Paul writes in Romans 8. That's how he can exalt God in that way. And Scripture teaches us to trust God, even in the middle of trials, because His promises and His character... They remain true no matter what you're going through. No matter what you're feeling, does that change who God is? No. God's character and His Word stays the same. What we have seen in this psalm is that suffering tempts us to question God. Prayer turns us to behold Him. And Scripture teaches us to trust Him. Those are the three claims that this psalm gives us about the nature of despair and how we are to climb out of despair. And David himself prayed, prayed himself out of this despair, prayed himself out of the, this trial, these difficulties. And that gives us a path to follow. Gives us something to, to follow after. Now, I love uh, uh, Pastor Dale Ralph Davis is a great preacher of the Old Testament. He has a commentary on this portion of the Psalms. And, I, and the title, which I absolutely love, is, is, is called Slogging Along in the paths of righteousness. And on the cover, it has these little, uh, little kid uh, in rain boots and trudging through the mud. I'm like, oh, I, I love that because it, it perfectly captures this song. And when we were in the middle of, of depression, when we were in, the, in our darkest discouragements, it feels like we're trudging through the mud, doesn't it? It feels like we're just slogging along. And when you walk through the mud, what happens? Your feet get stuck. You get all muddy. Each and every step requires effort and energy. And each and every step uh, is a a danger that you might slip, right? But when we come to the Psalms, we're trudging along in this mud. We begin to see footsteps ahead of us in the mud. So those are David's footsteps. Well, let me step where he stepped. He's able to to show us how we are to walk through the mud, how to walk through those bouts of despair and discouragement. And that gives us hope. It also helps us to do this as well. So we see David's footsteps and other footsteps of saints who have walked ahead of us. And that gives us sure footing to walk through the mud and to bring others 
who are walking alongside us through that mud as well. And additionally, it gives us something to pass along to those who are coming up behind us. It gives us a, a way to, to do disciple and train up those who are younger in the faith, those who are our spiritual children and our literal children. That's what we see here in the Psalms, of what we are called to do, to slog along in the paths of righteousness. And David gives us hope, and he shows us where we are to fix our eyes, not upon our struggles, but upon the trustworthy, unchanging, covenant-keeping, loving-kindness of our Lord and Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Yahweh, we come to you to praise you for your goodness, your mercy, your unfailing love, your steadfast, covenant-keeping, loving kindness. Lord, to know that, that your love for us, Lord, it will not be broken. We praise you just for the truthfulness of your word and the unchanging nature of your character. That once we are in your hand, you will not let us go. But that you will carry us through every dark valley, every green pasture. But Lord, teach us to go to you in prayer. Teach us to keep our eyes upon you, to trust in prayer and the power of your word to help us walk through the trials and the difficulties of this life. Lord, may we rest in your promises and walk slowly and steadily, following in the footsteps of David, but more importantly, following in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.